From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. The murder described in this story hit close to home for me. Not only did it happen near where I live, but it occurred at a remote lodge similar to the lodge my husband and I own. The crime took place in November, when the nights are long and cold and many people here struggle with depression and cabin fever. The mail plane pilot mentioned in this story was also our mail plane pilot at the time. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The mail plane stops once a week at a handful of water stops around Kodiak and the neighboring islands. The pilot is our only human contact with the outside world during the winter months, and he brings us news from town and his other remote stops. The mail plane pilot is also the eyes and ears for the Alaska State Troopers. When troopers receive a report or hear a rumor about something suspicious at one of the secluded lodges or cabins on the island, they contact the pilot and ask him what he saw and heard. Shuyak Island is part of the Kodiak Archipelago and lies north of Fognak Island and 50 miles north of the town of Kodiak. On November 12, 2015, Peter, the Island Air mailplane pilot, landed at Port William Wilderness Lodge on Shuyak Island. The lodge occupies an old cannery, and Peter found this stop memorable because instead of both of the lodge's caretakers greeting him as usual, only one caretaker, 44-year-old Stephen Ridnour, met the plane. Peter wondered why the other caretaker, Stephen McCauley, 56, also did not arrive to help unload the freight. Since the tide was high, the plane could not pull up to the beach, and Ridnour had to ferry the mail to shore by boat. Without Macaulay there to assist, the job proved difficult and time-consuming. Peter also found it curious that Ridnour simply stacked the freight above the high tide mark, grabbed his gear, and jumped on the plane for a ride back to Kodiak. Ridnour then flew to Anchorage, where he lived. On November 15th, Stephen Ridnour called the manager of Port William Wilderness Lodge, told him he'd quit his job, and asked for his past four paychecks. On November 17th, Stephen Ridnour's brother Don called the lodge manager and said his brother sent him and other family members Facebook messages stating he killed his fellow caretaker Stephen McCauley in self-defense and he needed money to leave the state. The manager contacted the Alaska State Troopers and requested a welfare check on McCauley at the lodge. 
While one trooper contacted the mail plane pilot, Peter, at Island Air, to ask him what he knew about the caretakers at Port William Wilderness Lodge, another trooper flew to the lodge on Shuyak Island. When the trooper arrived at the lodge, he found Stephen McCauley dead from gunshot wounds. His body lay sprawled outdoors near the lodge, and the trooper found a chainsaw 71 feet from him. A piece of tin roofing covered his body. The trooper sent McCauley's body to the state medical examiner's office in Anchorage for an autopsy. The troopers contacted the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, or the ABI, the Alaska Public Safety Information Network, and the Special Investigation Unit in Anchorage to inform them of the crime and alert them that they had not yet apprehended Ridenauer. The following day, the Anchorage Police Department arrested Stephen Ridenauer at his home in East Anchorage for three outstanding misdemeanor warrants, including failure to report to jail for a previous conviction. They did not immediately charge Ridenauer with Macaulay's murder, but instead held him on the lesser charges, allowing the ABI and the troopers time to investigate and build their case. Investigators interviewed Ridenauer soon after his incarceration, and he admitted he killed Stephen McCauley in self-defense. He said that late on the morning of November 12th, McCauley was cutting a tree with a chainsaw, when for no understandable reason he came at Ridenauer with the chainsaw. Ridenauer claimed he fell down and just happened to land near a shotgun loaded with slugs. He picked up the gun and proceeded to shoot Macaulay several times. Macaulay dropped the chainsaw and collapsed, but then managed to get up and head toward the lodge. Ridenauer somehow obtained an AR rifle and continued to shoot Macaulay until the rifle ran out of ammunition. Ridenauer said he kept shooting because he wanted to put Macaulay out of his misery, since there was no medical care available on the island. Ridenauer said he then threw the shell casings into the brush, reloaded the rifle, and put it back where it belonged in the lodge. Later that day, when the mail plane arrived, Ridenauer calmly helped unload the plane and then climbed aboard for a ride to Kodiak. Ridenauer was charged with first-degree murder and other felonies in the November 12th shooting of Stephen McCauley. Prosecutor Stephen Wallace admitted he mostly only had circumstantial evidence, and most of it was collected by Alaska State Troopers days and even weeks and months after the murder. Ridenauer confessed he moved shotgun shells from the scene and covered McCauley's body with a piece of corrugated tin roof. Troopers suspected he manipulated the scene even further to help make it look as if he acted in self-defense. In his opening statement, Wallace told the jury he would use Ridenauer's emails to describe the relationship and growing animosity between Ridenauer and McCauley while they worked at the lodge. Ridenauer complained to friends that even though he was hired before Macaulay, the lodge manager placed Macaulay in charge of him. Ridenauer described Macaulay as arrogant and stupid. 
He told one friend, staying sober and not drinking is the only thing keeping me from killing him. Public defender Emily Jura explained to the jury that Macaulay bullied Ridnour, and Ridnour was forced to shoot Macaulay to protect his own life. She said Ridnour had intended to call the troopers and report the incident as soon as he got to Kodiak, but he started drinking and lost his nerve. Troopers testified about the difficulties they experienced while surveying and taking measurements at the crime scene. They arrived at the old cannery on Shuyak on a typical Kodiak November day. It was so windy the pilot had to make several passes before he could land on the turbulent waves crashing onto the beach. As Trooper Robert Casey walked around the crime scene, it began to snow, and he feared they would lose vital evidence if the snow continued. When the troopers tried to take measurements at the scene, it was so gusty they could barely hold the tape measure straight, and defense counsel repeatedly noted that the measurements could only be considered rough approximations. Jurors listened to the taped interview of the troopers' first interrogation of Ridnour. The interview occurred on November 19, 2015, shortly after the police arrested Ridnour in Anchorage. In the recording, Ridnour said, I shot him. I shot him in self-defense. I shot him a bunch of times. He said Macaulay was coming at him with the chainsaw, and it just so happened there was a shotgun leaning against the cabin door. Ridnour claimed that both the shotgun and the second gun he used to shoot Macaulay, an AR-15 rifle, were outside and easily accessible to him. He said he and Macaulay had used the two weapons earlier in the day to shoot at a two-by-six-foot board on one of the old cannery buildings to bring down a smokestack. Troopers asked Ridnour in the taped interview why he didn't try to help Macaulay after he first shot him. Ridnour said he was afraid of Macaulay, and he claimed Macaulay kept getting up and swearing at him. He then added, Rendering aid? How was I going to fix up someone when he's full of holes? Let me take a short break from the story. In addition to writing about true crime, I am also an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I've written four novels. In Murder Over Kodiak, a float plane mysteriously explodes over Kodiak Island, killing the pilot and his five passengers. In The Fisherman's Daughter, a serial killer stalks the residents of the island, and authorities rush to catch him before more women die. And in my most recent novel, Carlick Bones, two young men set out for a hunting trip on Kodiak, expecting the adventure of a lifetime. But instead, they find themselves in the middle of a terrifying nightmare. Read one of my novels and take a trip to beautiful, dangerous, mysterious Kodiak Island. For more information about my books and where you can find them, please check the show notes or search for my name or the titles of my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online bookstores.
Rittenauer said Macaulay was cutting down a tree when he suddenly became angry and charged Rittenauer with the chainsaw. Rittenauer grabbed the shotgun leaning against the cabin door and shot Macaulay. Rittenauer claimed the first shotgun blast hit Macaulay's front side. But the medical examiner stated there was no shotgun wound on the front of Macaulay. The prosecution maintained Macaulay was simply cutting down a tree with a chainsaw when Ridenauer grabbed the shotgun and shot him. Once the shotgun was empty, Ridenauer picked up the AR-15 and moved to the higher ground of the cannery walkway, where he continued to shoot Macaulay. Dr. Ken Gallagher of the Alaska Medical Examiner's Office testified Macaulay was hit with four shotgun slugs and then shot seven times with the two .223 caliber rounds from the AR-15. Holes riddled his body. Gallagher said a shotgun slug pierced one of Macaulay's lungs. When asked how long a person could survive after such an injury, Gallagher estimated one would only live a minute to 90 seconds after receiving a lung wound similar to the one Macaulay suffered. According to Ridenauer's statement, Macaulay kept getting up after being shot and even managed to move quite a distance toward the cabin where Ridenauer feared he would grab a gun. Ridenauer's statement matched the physical evidence since the troopers found Macaulay's body 71 yards from the chainsaw he supposedly held when he charged Ridenauer. Defense attorney Jura asked Dr. Gallagher if a person shot in the lung could run or pick up a gun. Gallagher admitted this was possible. Crime scene investigator William Gifford testified he believed Ridenauer manipulated the crime scene to make it appear as if he shot Macaulay in self-defense. His most obvious manipulation was the piece of tin roofing he placed over Macaulay's body. Gifford stated he thought Ridenauer covered the body so the male plane pilot wouldn't see it when he circled the cannery before landing. Gifford also thought it was suspicious that Ridenauer moved the shotgun shell casings after the murder. The 12-gauge shotgun Ridenauer used to shoot Macaulay ejects the shells to the right. And if Ridenauer's tale of self-defense was true, troopers could have used the position of the ejected casings to confirm his story. Gifford reminded jurors that Ridenauer made several statements about the shotgun shells. In one statement, he said he kicked the shells into the brush, and in another, he said he picked up the shells and threw them into the brush. The prosecution originally suggested Macaulay was cutting down a tree when Ridenauer opened fire on him. But Gifford pointed out that the chainsaw cuts found on the tree looked as if they were made by someone unfamiliar with felling trees. According to the position of the cuts, the tree would have fallen the wrong direction, toward the buildings instead of away from them. Earlier testimony painted Macaulay as an expert with a chainsaw who had a great deal of experience cutting down trees. Would he make such a novice error? Or did Ridenauer make the cuts in the tree to back up his claim of self-defense and make it appear as if Macaulay was using the chainsaw to cut the tree and then try to attack Ridenauer with the chainsaw?
Ridenour had earlier emailed a lady friend in Florida and told her his sobriety was the only thing keeping him from killing Macaulay. But from emails and Facebook messages in the days preceding the shooting incident, it is apparent Ridenour again began drinking alcohol. The prosecution claimed Ridenour spent his final few days on Shuyak Island hunting, drinking, and letting his anger toward Macaulay build. On November 9th, Ridenour sent his friend a Facebook message confessing he was drinking a glass of wine. Two days later, he told her he planned to drink whiskey that night. In the same messages, he expressed his anger toward Macaulay. In a November 10th Facebook message to his lady friend, Ridenour said, When I get out of this corner again, I'm coming out blazing. Ridenour claimed he shot Stephen McCauley on the morning of November 12th, but the troopers testified they do not know exactly when McCauley was killed. Ridenour could have killed McCauley in a drunken rage and then sobered up, manipulated the crime scene, and concocted a story of self-defense. The defense began presenting its case by calling five witnesses in a row who testified McCauley had a short temper and could be violent. Defense counsel Jura then called David Bolgiano, an expert on the psychological and physiological effects that fear, violence, and a life-and-death struggle can have on a human. Bolgiano said during a deadly encounter, a human's heart rate rises, his vision narrows, and he may not even hear the gunfire. According to Bolgiano, most people are not equipped mentally or physically to make good decisions during these encounters. He said there have been many documented instances of gunshot victims continuing for several minutes after being hit by a fatal round. Bolgiano told jurors the number of shots fired in a gunfight is irrelevant. He said even a trained professional, such as a police officer, might continue to fire for up to two seconds after a signal to stop. When cross-examined by the prosecutor, though, Bolgiano admitted that after Ridenour grabbed the AR-15, he flanked McCauley, and once he gained the advantage of higher ground, he continued to fire at McCauley. Bolgiano said these maneuvers seemed more like a strategically planned assault than a heat-of-the-moment encounter. During closing arguments, District Attorney Stephen Wallace portrayed Ridenour as an angry man who hated his co-worker and wanted to leave Shuyak Island. Wallace said Ridenour let his anger boil inside him for days until he ambushed Macaulay and shot him 11 times. In her closing argument, public defender Emily Jura stated Ridenour was afraid of Macaulay, a man who, according to the testimony of several witnesses, was prone to violence. She said when Ridenour shot Macaulay, he was simply defending his life from a man who was advancing on him with a chainsaw. Jurors deliberated for a day and a half before returning with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder attempted murder, first-degree assault, and tampering with evidence. The judge sentenced Stephen Ridenour to 62 years for murder and evidence tampering.
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.